Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here today with Zane Jaffer. Zane, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you start off by telling our listeners who you are and where you're from? I'm Zane Jaffer. You can tell by the accent that I am not from the US. I'm actually originally from the UK, but now I live in the US. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, although now I'm on the real estate principal side and the venture capital side. Uh, quick background for me, started numerous companies. The last one was sold to Blackstone for $780 million in 2019. After that, I set up a family office and I started buying real estate. And then I joined Bluefield Capital, which is a private equity real estate fund. And through that, we buy real estate, a lot of multifamily, light industrial, hospitality, senior care. We do some construction, build to rent townhomes. And then we also invest in prop tech startups via a venture capital fund that I started. And so right now, I would say 90% of my time is spent investing in real estate technology startups. And 10% of it is spent doing the typical investment committee stuff where we're looking at real estate, we're making decisions to hire and fire property management, which happens way too often, by the way, you know, uh, approving capital calls and things like that. Makes sense. Yeah, very impressive background. And we'll, we'll dive into everything that you're doing today and the journey along the way as well. But what started it all with real estate for you? What was that first exposure to the power of real estate as an investment, as as a industry to be working within in some way, shape or form? Do you have that memory of that, that first exposure to it? Yeah, the first exposure was probably the fact that I couldn't even pay my own rent. And here I was running a startup on paper it looks very successful, but I wasn't taking a salary. And I just felt like this is such a loser's game. I'm on the rent side and eventually I saved up enough money to buy a home and the home I had eyed, I kept thinking prices are gonna go low. And if anything, now I'm taking a salary from my company, I'm saving up and I live in San Francisco and we saw so much price inflation with three years later, that same house increased in so much value that you know the cash I saved up still wasn't enough to buy the home because the down payment requirements kept increasing. And so it was just like, I'm going to get, I, I need to get a piece of this, you know? So being a startup founder, my entire net worth was concentrated in one illiquid stock. And I felt one day I want to diversify and I want to understand real estate. If you look at wealth, it's a big component of the portfolios of very wealthy people, real estate. And also a lot of people make a lot of money in real estate. If you study, you know, billionaires, a lot of them have come from real estate. So I just felt like this is what I want to learn next. The idea that you can leverage up, you can buy, and if you hold and you stay patient, you will see your asset appreciate as long as you buy it for the right price, obviously. And you can do things like 1031 exchanges and you can roll your, you know, you can roll your gains. And so as soon as I sold my company, I, I wanted to get into it. Awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. And everything you said is very true. And some of the major reasons why I'm in real estate, I always tell my my friends who don't understand it or, you know, they're still renting. I say, 
I don't know a single millionaire or billionaire that doesn't have a large holding of their portfolio in real estate. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. I mean, <laughs> what kind of life do you want to live, right? So, uh, yeah, this is an industry that I, a long time ago, decided to really dive into. And, you know, from the investment side, it was my first exposure. Marketing side was my second exposure. And now I do have my license and I'm on the commercial side. So, uh, I've been in it for a little while here and, and kind of similar reasons for you. So, I'm it very curious. To, oh, it, what's that? It always struck me too that when you think about real estate as a percentage of net worth. You look around and you see some folks who live in these great McMansions, but it's more than 100% of their net worth tied up in that real estate. And, you know, they're levered to the throats and they're in a very risky situation. And then you see really smart folks where real estate, and this is unfortunately how it works, the more wealth you have, you know, the more real estate you have and the lower the percentage of your net worth your home is, Eventually, you get to the situation where the majority of your net worth is tied up in commercial real estate, or, 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 you know, I'm speaking as a real estate person here, right? But even for very wealthy people, they've got a lot of commercial real estate investments. Their home is even is not even calculated in the net worth calculations. And that's the magic trick, you know? How do you go from getting into real estate and diversifying carefully to the point where you, your home isn't your real estate? Your home is where you live. Your real estate is, you know, an, an asset that works for you. Truly. Yes. And, and in the uh, Robert Kiyosaki definition of an asset that is producing income for you, right? It's not, not just with the home that you live in. That's not necessarily the asset that you think it is. If it's you know taking money out of your pocket, it might be appreciating, but we're talking about investment properties, agriculture, multifamily, right? Land, doing land flipping, that kind of, of commercial real estate investment. So I would love to dive into the, the company that Blackstone purchased for $780 million. Obviously, that probably is is past the point of, of NDA where you can now talk about it. And I'm very interested to learn like what that company was, what was the unique value proposition, and to just learn the story of how do you even get to the table to talk to Blackstone about acquisition? You know, it sounds quite simple to try to sum up what I would say was, you know, a decade of hard work and preceding that years and years of failures so the company was in the advertising technology industry, just as mobile phones were taking off. And we realized that all those ads that people see on TV, those ads are one day going to flow to mobile. Yeah. Less money being spent on newspapers and billboards and traditional forms of advertising. And so that's what we did. We built a way for video ads to be displayed on mobile applications. And that company took off like crazy. Talk about being in the right space at the right time. We yeah. started a company and in our first year, we hit 850,000 revenue. Second year, we went to 15 million. And by the third year, it was 56 million. And eventually, you know, it was like three to 400 million with some serious EBITDA. It was 70 million to 100 million EBITDA annually. So, you know, there's that. And then there's the other experiences, which I see daily as a VC, where you invest in a startup and you put money into it and it just isn't taking off and it's burning money and it fails. And I think I was very lucky, you know, uh, it was in the right time, right space, as I mentioned. It was a rare outcome. It's obviously the, the Goldilocks, you know, great story here, but luck is a huge part of it. <laughs> right place, right time. I, and, you know, I, I look at, I, I counsel a lot of people who, who want to, Get exposure to startups. And I think to myself, okay, if you want to invest in the startup asset class, do it because you are 
passionate and do it because you want to add some value and mentor founders, right? Don't do it because you want to make money. If you want to make money, go invest in real estate. Real estate is the easiest and safest path to a 3X. If you hold long enough, you'll get two to 3X, no problem with some distributions along the way. If you're investing in startups, and if you make the typical mistake where you meet someone and you love what they're doing and you, you put so much money into it, you're likely going to fail. So money is secondary. And if you're going to approach the startup asset class, diversify and treat it like a portfolio where you want at least 10 investments, ideally 20. And if you don't have the time to do that, go invest in a venture capital fund instead. Because it, you know, it sounds like the same if you if brokers and people in the industry appreciate this too. If you like a tech guy try to go into real estate and you're a loop net browsing around, you're going to get really bad deals. And if you're going to believe what the seller's telling you, you're, you're going to get your, your, you know, your shirt ripped off. In the same right. way in venture capital too, you need deal flow. You need to be a professional. So uh, if anyone is trying to enter the startup you know, landscape to make a quick buck, it doesn't work like that. Startups, you know, I would say <laughs> right now at this point in time, even more risky than Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of crypto. You know, crypto is far safer. I mean, you're hearing from a tech guy, obviously, but that's my view. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I feel like any industry you look at where people are making money, you're attracted to it for that reason. It always seems so much easier from the outside. And real estate, in fact, the sales of real estate is, is one of those industries as well. Someone sees a real estate agent driving a nice car and they think, oh man, of course, like, you know, 3% of a million dollars is 30 grand. I could sell a couple of those a year and, you know, it supersede my salary and they get into it and they realize how much work it is and they fail because they don't understand all everything that goes into it to get to that level. So I feel like it's the same. Anywhere you go, it's going to take work. It's going to take mentorship and dedication and you're going to have to learn it and create, you know, lead generation or deal flow, have the conversion down to where you're qualifying, moving things down the pipeline, then tying things up in acquisition, selling them like th it's the same process. So uh, I would, I just want to follow back to the advertising technology startup where you formatted video for phones. So I'm, I'm curious, I want to understand a little bit more. So is that where you were the infrastructure technology behind the what Facebook used, for example, to run ads or to display video on the mobile device? Is that what you mean? Like huge companies like that licensed your technology to then display the video? Is, is that what you mean? Yes, but not Facebook, obviously. Facebook was trying to cut our throats and, you know, did really well with Google. Right. But we would allow other mobile phone, mobile app developers to embed our technology and showcase video ads. Mm. And we didn't charge a licensing fee. Instead, we took a revenue share. We took a hefty revenue share. We took 40%. So if Coca-Cola is advertising and spending $100,000 in, in an app, that developer is getting $60,000. We were getting $40,000. If you do the math, if I just have two apps integrating my technology, it's like I own an app for myself. Yeah. So I had 100,000 apps showcasing video ads, and we were the ones who were aggregating the demand, aggregating the advertising dollars and flowing them through. It was a true case of there's a gold rush and we're selling the shovels. We didn't want to take the risk and try to build a game. Mm -hmm. Instead, we thought, let's power the monetization for these games. There's going to be all these games that are rising up the charts, and they're going to stay in the top 10, and then they're going to disappear. How do we instead get so much volume that it's like owning a top 10 game without owning it. But yeah, when you have, the middle, man. 
Right. And when you have the technology powering video ads and you're in a hundred thousand plus applications, it feels pretty good. You know, you got a lot of revenue coming through that. And um, at the beginning, it was very shaky. We would have, you know, bumpy revenue. We would have too much concentration with certain types of apps or a app itself. But eventually, once you diversify and you build a platform, it feels pretty good. You know, you've got this, uh, I cannot call it recurring revenue, like licensing revenues, because it's transactional based. But hmm. once you have enough apps, as long as you're having more users and more apps come into the network, your revenue increases month over month. And that, that, that's what made the business very attractive uh, to acquirers and also, you know, to, to run. It's, it's, it's great to see that money coming in. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for explaining that further. You know, coming from a real estate, property technology and, and tech startup background myself, I was curious what exactly you meant by that. So I have full understanding now and I appreciate you diving in a little deeper. So talking about what you're doing today, my big question for you is what do you look for in a company when you are deciding to invest in pre-seed, seed, you know, pre-series A? You know, what are the things you're looking for? Let me start with what I'm not looking for. And I think I want to, I want to answer that from the perspective of, you know, your listeners. As real estate principals, when we look at a real estate deal, we are looking at the financials. We're looking at the market comps. We're going through and looking through that with a fine tooth comb. You cannot take that approach when you look at a startup. In startup land, I do the opposite of what real estate investors do. Would a real estate investor buy the pro forma that the agent's given them and would a real estate investor buy the vision of what the agent and the seller is saying? No way. It's exactly what you're supposed to do when you invest in a startup. You're supposed to believe in the vision of the founder and their passion. For right. sure, you don't want to believe in the vision and the passion of the, the guy trying to sell you, you know, his, his old residential or multifamily building, right? That, you know, has a bunch Here's of what it could be. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I am taking a leap of faith and I'm betting on this team, the founder, their vision. I don't care about the numbers at this early stage. Comps are sort of irrelevant too because they don't even have, sometimes it's just a person in their deck. That's it. Other times, you know, they'll have early revenues and revenues could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm, I'm paying a large premium to invest. I'm paying a very high multiple of revenue. Often real estate folks ask me, how do you value these startups? You cannot value it on a multiple of revenue in the same way that a general tech company is going to have a very high, very high revenue multiple or an EBITDA multiple because you're buying future growth. So the bet is, look, the one thing you do look at is how big the market size is. So is this the right team and is this a huge market? And is this a market that this company can, can successfully capture to the point where even if they're not the number one player, but they're like number two, number three, number four, number five, it can support a very large outcome. At this early stage, the risk is very high. More than half the companies will go to zero. And I would say eight out of 10 will generate a very paltry outcome. You're looking at the one to two companies that can generate in excess of 10X. But it's a dice roll. Is it a 10X? Is it 100X? Is it 1,000X? I don't know. And that often is a function of the team and the market. So yeah, when I invest, I really want to see, can this be a 100X return for me? To do the math, if I'm investing at a $5 million valuation, can this be a $500 million plus company? Often $500 million plus is not enough. It needs to be a billion because I'll be diluted over time. Right. That's sort of a quick economic walkthrough of how I think about deals. 
Makes sense. And the way that you talked about painting the vision and it being opposite from real estate was an interesting analogy for my listeners. So I appreciate you painting that picture because you're right. I mean, you see the uh, the OM from the listing broker and you see this extremely compressed cap rate, but they're talking about what you could do with the property. You could tear the roof off and add five stories and here, here's what your cap rate would be then, you know, but that that obviously is painting a vision for something that is not here today. And real estate is so much more concrete of what are the current rent rolls? Okay. All right. You're probably exaggerating your expenses I'm going to say that your expenses are 50% because you're saying they're 30% and they're not, right? And and it's so much more about today. But I live in the land of being very optimistic and hardworking and vision-oriented and working towards the future. So that, that's an area that I can recognize in, in the startup space, right? When you said it, I was like, that is the difference right there. It's interesting. So I'm curious to learn some of your entrepreneur habits you know, what's the single most important action that you take on a daily basis that you would say attributes most to your success? Now or back when I was a founder, because now I'm really in the position of being an investor, which is a different, you know, skill set being a capital allocator versus being someone who's in operations. Uh, so how, how, how do you want me to answer that? Good clarifying question. Of course, if there's this one thing that carried through, then that would be awesome. But I would say if I had to choose between the two, what helped you most back then as a startup founder? You know, the younger listeners have a lot of energy will probably appreciate this and people don't talk about it enough, but I had to work really hard to the point where, you know, I did sacrifice a lot of sleep and I did sacrifice a lot of health. And I was in my 20s when I started and it's a great time for anyone in their 20s to really go at it wherever they are, whether they're going into real estate and they're pounding the phone calls well, you know, they're going to the startup world and the grinding and hustling. It's all the same, right? Uh, so for me, it was, I put an intense amount of energy and I was obsessed. I have that personality trait where once I'm doing something, I get tunnel vision and I get obsessed with it. And I just want to build, build, build around it. And once that starts, you're unstoppable. And I find this is how the world tends to be. Once you make that phone call, once you go to that conference and you tell people what you're working on, or you tell people you're looking to buy something like, you know, I'm in the market in Louisiana and I'm looking to buy, you know, townhomes, for example, right? Oh, I know so-and-so. Oh, you should talk to so-and-so before, you know, it's a steam. It just starts to roll. So I think just internalizing your, your vision and letting it out talking about it, getting out and working hard. There's no substitute. I'm sorry. There's no substitute for hard work. There are habits that make you productive, but those are, those are just like, you know, oiling the wheel, really. Really what you need is an engine and you need to be willing to put the pedal to the gas and just roar really fast and, you know, swing for the fences and risk burning out. But that's, that's how you go down burning in flames, you know? I love to hear it. Because if there was a way to be sitting on a white sand beach in Tahiti and three years later, your startup sells for $780 million, then I would, I would have discovered it by now. But instead, I've been working 100-hour weeks for years and you know, grinding through ups and downs and, and making it happen. And uh, you know, that it's definitely always good to hear other successful exit 
or founders that have done a successful exit say the same thing. Like, look, it's just a ton of work, man. <laughs> and and you just gotta be, a, you just gotta be obsessed about it and in it and, and really like painting the vision and motivating your team. And, and when things go wrong, own it and just keep moving forward. And yeah. You pretty much have to do everything right. And then get lucky that you're in a big growing market and things work out. You can still be in a big growing market and not do everything right. And it probably won't work out, but you know, it's a prerequisite that you do everything right and then luck's also on your side. I, mm. I don't think that's the same case with real estate, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's yes. different dynamics and, and you can take a measured patient approach. It, it's different. Different, different in the startup world for sure, though. Yep. So nowadays, do you have a particular type of real estate technology startup that you're looking for? I saw on, on LinkedIn, you, you had PropTech as one of your hashtags. Um, are you looking at advertising technology? Are you looking at conversational AI? Like, do you have any favorites uh, of, of kind of what you're seeing as far as, okay, I think the industry's going this way. Obviously, real estate, massive industry, uh, real estate agents, massive marketplace that's spending a lot of money uh, on advertising and services to supplement their deal flow. So I'm just curious, like, what yeah. trends are you seeing? What companies are you looking at investing in right now? We'll deep dive into PropTech in a moment, but from a very high level, there's plenty of areas and I have exposure to these areas, but I'm not actively investing because I believe you need to have your, your, your thing. Whether you're the person that buys, you know, farmland in a certain zip code, right? Or whether you're the person that, you know, does, does a certain asset class in a region, right? Same way I believe in having a focus. Uh, lots of opportunities when it comes to startups, by the way, I think insurance tech, legal tech, health tech, are really big. I think fintech's getting a little bit late and crowded, but PropTech's obviously the one that I decided to really focus on because I'm interested in it. When you dive into PropTech, wow, where do you start? You could segment it by different asset classes, or you could segment it by the different workflows that exist in real estate. And let's be provocative. Let's like dive into a, a workflow plus an asset class for a second. Let's say multifamily invest, in, investments from a funds perspective. Even there, you've got a whole category of startups that are focused on analyzing and underwriting and due diligence of assets. Mm -hmm. Then you've also got the operations and management of the asset, whether that's property management, collecting rents, uh, dealing with the maintenance issues. And then you also have the fund administration and reporting aspects with how do you manage a fund? How do you report progress to LPs? How do you go get more LPs? And then lastly, the disposition of assets and, you know, the valuation. And, you know, there's so much in PropTech that I just talked about one segment. If you deep dive into property management for multifamily, you've got a whole cadre of startups. You've got startups that do 3D virtual tours, access control. They do, you know, leak detection. Every part of the expense line in a real estate, like multifamily again, right? Multifamily property management expenses. Every single one of those areas, there probably is a startup that could help you optimize uh, and reduce your cost or improve your revenues. So broadly, I'm trying to get broad exposure to PropTech overall. Our portfolio at Bluefield, you know, multi-billion dollar portfolio of multifamily primarily. And then we also have senior care, hospitality, and industrial. So I try to focus on things that match those areas, but also I want to get exposure to larger trends. Residential is the biggest part of you know, real estate. Commercial real estate is tiny compared to residential. So I also invest in areas there. And then where I'm interested, where I see things going is blockchain and Web3. Web3 basically mm. is the future of how uh, real estate will look in my view. 
where everything is going to be tokenized, it's going to be a blockchain, everything's going to be smart contracts, and you'll be cutting out potentially intermediaries, which is scary. You know, brokers being cut out, lawyers being cut out, title companies being cut out. The whole area is just full of so many middlemen where there is room for efficiency. Now, that vision is still far away. For that to materialize, we're looking at least five years out, more like 10 to 20 years out. But I definitely see a sea change coming in regards to how real estate transactions unfold and how they're efficient and how they're traded the way, you know, stocks are traded. That's how real estate will be traded. And I'm starting to see the early signs of that. Yeah, I, I think it's a very astute prediction that the tokenization and blockchain combination will replace so many of the transactional aspects and the, the paper heaviness of the real estate transaction. And I talk to brokers all day, every day, whether it's on my podcast, whether it's my clients, or you know, interacting with another broker about a deal. It's, it's a firm belief that the real estate broker will still be at the center of the transaction for a long time coming. I, that will be, I think, the last piece uh, because when you're dealing with large assets, it and especially even on the luxury side, luxury real estate homeowners are willing to pay a high commission to an agent that's going to do it right, and they won't have to worry about it, right? They're not looking to save a dollar and do it automated. They want someone to just take care of it for them. And so I, I think that elements of the real estate transaction, especially on the residential side, like the median homes, the lower end homes, things like that, those will be more automated and people will be penny pinching and saving dollars by cutting out certain aspects. We've already seen it. We've already seen it. People using Zillow offers and Redfin and and things like that to complete transactions um, with an agent that's been paid hourly to go open a door for them instead of a commission or things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how, exactly how it evolves over the next 5, 10, 20 years. But I agree with you 100% on the tokenization and blockchain. And oh, another no. big reason is the international, the global uh, way to purchase real estate, right? Not having to exchange currency or deal with a mortgage process in another country. Uh, you can just switch over some a coin or, or tokenize a property and have a certain part of it and syndicate it. I mean, there's so many interesting options here. Right, and going back to the idea around um, disintermediating brokers, see a lot of startups that try to compete head on with brokers and they, they get crushed. The smartest, smart, the smartest startups are the ones that actually empower brokers and enable brokers to use technology to automate their workflow. Uh, and that, that is a critical mistake a lot of startups try to do. They try to take a transaction fee and threaten and try to compress the margins. And brokers will always have a place and real estate moves very, very slowly. Look, I do think years out, things will change, but for the foreseeable future, which I would say is the lifespan of the startups that we invest in today. Five to 10 years out, the brokers are going to be the ones that control things. What you're going to see is the rise of tech-enabled brokers, which is understandable. Mm. You're going to see small mom-and-pop brokerages uh, get bought up, and you're going to see the larger brands, the JLLs, the Cushman and Wakefields, you know, the, the CBREs, they're going to have to do more to justify taking that big cut they're taking. And that's why those very funds, right? Those very funds and those, sorry, those very firms are the ones who are investing heavily in prop tech right now. Can't tell you the number of C-level executives and board member level executives from those companies have invested in, in my deals or in my fund or in startups that I've invested in. They're looking at this category and they're realizing, mm -hmm. okay, we need to implement tech to, to make a difference, you know? So I saw this exact same thing five years ago. I, and... Shameless self-promotion, our slogan at DZ Digital, my agency, is empowering real estate professionals with technology. 
Right. <laughs> That's literally what you just said. And uh, the reason why is because I noticed that in the real estate industry, there were all these successful brokers that had been doing real estate in their market for 20, 25 years. Some of the, them have been spending $60,000 a month in brand awareness for 20 years, billboards, radio, TV. They had this amazing local brand. They're the go-to person. And you look at their digital presence, it's terrible. They have no SEO, no online presence, no paid advertising, digital media that they can track, no lead generation funnels that are being consistently uh, optimized for conversion, no follow-up once the lead's generated. People expect instant response when it's an online lead. They're following up two days later when an online need needs to be followed up within five minutes, otherwise it's dead. And there are so many inefficiencies along the way. So I thought, huh, what if I could just come help these top 1% brokers with all their digital stuff, right? And empower them with technology. And it uh, turns out it was a good bet. You know, the National Association of Realtors, uh, they said that 87% of all new agents fail in the first five years. And it's because of this. And I think that's probably coming from a more residential focus, but I would argue yes. that really matters. Where if you're not leveraging technology in your workflow, you know, how are you going to stand out in this day and age where your very clients are the ones who are looking at those channels? So yeah, the technology is being used everywhere in real estate now, and that's the trend. Yeah. No, and it was also interesting to hear you say that the companies that are attempting to compete or fee split with brokers are the ones that get crushed. And then the ones that are empowering them are the ones that are being supported and embraced by brokers. Because yeah. a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a startup founder who had had a successful exit. I think he did like 80 million or something, sold to Fidelity. As you mentioned, a large real estate company that's investing in, in prop tech. And um, he told me, oh, you're doing uh, like lead generation and, and digital marketing stuff for brokers. I wouldn't be interested in that unless you're taking a fee split. And for me, I never have. I, I always kept it on more of a retainer model, maybe monetize ad spend and, and do different things like that. So it was actually encouraging for me to hear you say that from the broker perspective, they don't want a fee split. <laughs> they'll, they'll avoid it at all costs. And uh, I have also noticed that to be true. In most cases, you know, there are products that have come out like Zillow Flex and they'll take 35% of the commission and in exchange for uh, a lead that they transfer you hot transfer via phone. And the brokers that are accepting that the benefit is they don't pay for the lead until it closes. So to them, Hey, when money comes in, I split off a piece, but it becomes so expensive. I mean, they end up paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for that lead rather than generating it themselves for five bucks on Facebook. And you have a 1% closing ratio. So for $500, you closed one home rather than for 5,000, right? 10 times less expense. So I, I find it really interesting that you said that. Do you have any feedback there? No, I mean, this is, this is it. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. You've got to deliver a really clear value proposition when you're in PropTech. And what I like about PropTech is, at least on the commercial side, not the residential side, the commercial side mainly. It's a rational value proposition. The product you're selling, and we call it enterprise sales basically, or B2B, the product you're selling needs to show clear value, clear ROI. Either it saves time or it increases the revenue. And that's it. If you can show a clear ROI on your product, there's no reason why someone wouldn't use it as long as you know it moves the needle for them. So why come in and try to threaten their, their, their income instead and try to, you know, fee split? 
you know, yes, theoretically, reading a book, Zero to One, and it talks about, you know, building monopolies, basically, right? Technology companies should be monopolies is sort of the view. And yes, but later on, once you've got Google, Facebook scale, then you leverage and wield your power. At the start, though, I see startups just being like, oh, we're going to be like the, you know, we're going to crush these uh, real estate agents and we're going to be the tech-enabled real estate agent of the future. Wrong. You know, like, no, you can't just supplant decades and decades of, of local geographic knowledge and connections and relationships and reputation. And you know what? This industry's seen that many times over where a lot of new upstarts yep. come in, do that, and they just burn out quickly. I could name a few right now, but <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're, you're completely right. And isn't it just always the spirit of adding value that makes things successful? Like when you come into an industry and you're like, I'm going to replace it. And you coming from that more negative energy of, I'm just going to completely disrupt the segment and this and that, that can work. But to your point, isn't it better to align and add value and become a part of first I mean, it's, exactly. it's, prob- it's probably an example that's a little bit too close to the chest because a lot of my real estate listeners, they, they have seen the Zillow introduction on the residential side that said, we'll never be a brokerage. Give us your listings. We'll create an amazing technology platform. And then, you know, you guys will still be doing the transactions. All the MLS has said, okay, and gave Zillow, who was a tech company at the time, uh, just, yeah, here you go, right? Now you have the property data. Then 10 years later, Zillow said, we're a brokerage now. We have more views than any other real estate website on earth. And so they, they switched it later, but they have seen a lot of success through that process as well. So, I mean, whether you like Zillow or hate them, or you think they're, you know, they're good or evil or whatever, that was a successful model. They aligned with the, with the industry, helped the industry for years and years and years and years and years, offered an amazing mobile first technology that was not available i mean the, the the whether you like zillow or not the mobile experience the consumer has chosen that that's what they prefer and they have pioneered that right and now you know they have taken the other stance of yes we're a brokerage yes we're offering loans yes we're doing these other things to help monetize and grow as a company but to your point they first aligned they didn't come in from day one saying right we're a tech company we're replacing the agent here we are Exactly. And uh, in another industry, because you were talking about my last startup that I founded, we came in and we also displaced the agencies. Very similar model. They would take a revenue share of media spend. And so these ad agencies would represent advertising clients. And at the start, we partnered with them. We were like, hey, let's help you reach people on mobile. We've got the technology platform. And we did that. And we became a go-to resource for the agencies. It wasn't until then that when we had that critical mass that we leveraged our position, you know, we realized, well, we've got unique access to all this mobile inventory. Let's increase the cost. And eventually let's go direct to the uh, client. And that's what happened. We, we, you know, unfortunately for a lot of the agencies, look, I'm a company. I mean, agencies are trying to run each other out of business. No, no, no apologies here. I did the same thing. Like I'm competing with the agencies technically, this is like, you know, the Rockefeller, uh, uh, you know, the Rockefeller example in Vanderbilt where, you know, he has all this oil and there's all these railroads, right, being built. And he then realizes, okay, I'm putting all my oil on these train tracks and, you know, the, 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 on the railroad side, suddenly it's like, we're going to increase the fees. And that's when you're like, screw that. I'm, I'm then going to have to do something else and probably start building pipelines. So in the same way, we were like, okay, 
you know, it's a tension between us and the agency. Now it's time to cut them out, you know, and, right. and we did and it worked well, uh, but it would have failed at the start. Right. Exactly. There was a time for it. There is a time for it. I guess uh, what I'm saying is this is how technology companies run. <laughs> I don't have a lot of trust in what a technology company says. We will always do right by this stakeholder. They will change as you know, the pressures from Wall Street come and they're a public company and they have new investors and they get greedy. Mark Zuckerberg was the same with advertising, you know? And now, you know, advertising is one of the core ways to make revenue. This is just the nature of life and um, this is capitalism at work. Yeah, no, it's true. And I also agree with you when I hear founders with really good intentions say, you know, we'll always take care of this particular stakeholder and back to the Zillow example, it's exactly what they did. Hey, we'll always take care of the real estate broker. We're never going to become a brokerage. Fast forward six, seven years. Hey, guys, we're becoming a brokerage now. So, <laughs> uh, it's- yeah, but look, that's not a reason not to partner with a startup, right? I'm, I'm right. just being very direct because I think your listeners would appreciate that, you know, an honest perspective. Yeah. But you have to partner with startups if they can save you money and make you more revenue. Uh, you just have to make sure that it's on terms that protect your core asset. There are some assets that are valuable and some aren't. If you're giving all your data to a startup, you know that that's more questionable. But if the startup is just giving you a platform to automate your workflows, there's a win-win. And yeah. you know power dynamics change in relationships all the time. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same between a landlord and a broker, and and you know a tenant and a property manager. I mean. The dynamic shifts, naturally. And to your point with the Vanderbilt-Rockefeller situation, oh, okay, if you're going to increase the fees in the railroad, then I'll build a pipeline. Exactly. These, yeah. these, these shifts and power plays actually create new industry segments and new jobs. And that's why I'm always a little bit confused when a new industrial revolution comes around and people are still fearing their job security. Jobs just evolve and, and industries evolve. And, you know, for example, in the first industrial revolution, instead of someone hand building a piece of, mach- of machinery, now they have an assembly line. Well, now there's machines. Now we need engineers to fix the machines. So they took the guys off the line, they put them in school, they came back and they fixed the machines and they made twice as much money because now they're an, an educated, skilled worker. Every time something evolves and iterates or a sector of the market is eliminated, another sector, another door opens or two or three. So I, I have very much more so in an abundance mindset that whenever an opportunity goes away, it's probably just shifted in reality. And, and there's something else that can be, can be done there or you can move in a different direction. Exactly. And uh, I, I write a lot. I sometimes write for Forbes and Entrepreneur and I wrote an article about, you know, the rise of the robots. And basically, you know, we're seeing situations now where we're taking care of the robots and, you know, someone's showing up to a building to do the cleaning and they're monitoring the robot and that's it. And they right. fix and triage the robot. Like the nature of jobs are changing. They're becoming a little bit more technical, but also freeing people to be more creative and escaping the mundane, laborious tasks. The hope and promise is that the cost savings will pass on to the consumers ultimately. Of course, the way our capitalist society works is when a tech company has enough power, anyone has enough power, they want to you know, increase their margins and capture more value. That's why competition is good, right? Competition is good because it, it forces prices to sort of be more, uh, you know, the market to sort of dictate what happens with pricing. But yeah, this is, this is the world we live in, you know, and I think robots and technology can uh, change the nature of work and make it more interesting rather than completely replace. Yes, absolutely. So is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to expand upon from earlier? 
No, I think it was a, a wonderful question. Uh, oh, sorry, the question being wonderful, but it was the questions you've asked have been, you know, great. And I think you covered everything and it was a uh, really enjoyed being on the show. Awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed having you on. How can listeners contact you? Zane at proptechvc.com. That's proptechvc.com. Awesome. Z-A-I-N. Awesome. I'll link to that below. And really appreciate having you on. Zane Jaffer, everyone. Uh, I believe you're based in San Francisco. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, based in the Bay Area, you know, PropTech VC, uh, past successful exit founder. I mean, I always love talking to someone who's had a successful exit because that is the goal. Um, really, really appreciate having you on and, and just having all of your insights and wisdom imparted to my listeners. So thank you. Great. Thank you so much as well. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free Ultimate Real Estate Goal Setting Framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.